From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. of rules and regulations that would ordinarily be imposed by mom and dad, or if it's a single parent household, the parent or the guardian, they are rendered by these non-parental figures. And so the law is all over in all kinds of ways uh, that I describe in the article through the perspectives of the kids, their experiences. Welcome to season nine of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. Foster children can challenge decisions by the child welfare systems, but resolution can fall outside the process. Bernard Perlmutter, director of the Children and Youth Law Clinic, unpacks his latest scholarship. Let's go to Charlton Copeland, associate dean for intellectual life, with the interview. Good morning. It's a pleasure to have my colleague uh, here with me in, in, in the studio. I want to first thank uh, my colleague, Catherine Skip, who's given me the opportunity to do this segment that we're calling Forthcoming. Um, and uh, Bernie, again, thank you for, for being here. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to talk about this, this chapter. I really enjoyed it. Uh, the title of the chapter is called Give Me My Allowance or I'll Run Everyday Resistance by Foster Children and Justice uh, outsourced. Um, I want to begin by asking, what was what's the impetus? I and 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 um, uh, for for writing this chapter. Well, the impetus was um, I was invited to contribute a chapter to a book that was being uh, put together by uh, two colleagues. One, a long, an old standing, long standing colleague, Michael. Perlin, um, who's an emeritus professor at New York Law School and a criminologist at Loyola uh, University in uh, in New Orleans, they were putting together this book called Justice Outsourced, and it was uh, published originally in a in a in a journal. Uh, but the the idea of this was that they wanted to investigate primarily in the criminal justice system ways that judicial decisions are rendered by non-judicial officers, NJOs. Um, and, uh, and so I was invited to participate as, an, as one of the non-criminal justice uh, participants in this, in this project. And Michael Berlin said to me, you know, you, you do work, you write about foster children. What can you tell us about uh, the role of the non-judicial officer in rendering decisions over children in, in state care? And so that was the genesis of this of this chapter that is now in this book, published by Temple University Press. Well, I want to ask, so for our audience, um, who is in this context the non-judicial officer? Well, I, I investigated it, I think, in a somewhat creative way, because um, what I look at is that these are wards of the court. Mm -hmm. These are children in state custody. Uh, the court has a responsibility to monitor their uh, time and care when they're removed from the custody of their parents who have lost the right to make decisions about them. So the court is making, the ju juvenile court, juvie, is rendering decisions every six months in judicial review hearings over these children. So that's, that's one part of it. Clearly, there's a judicial officer involved in that decision as to whether or not the child's placement is appropriate and parents are complying with their case plan. Then there's a whole range of administrative decisions about benefits and services that is not assigned 
general, generally, certainly not in Florida, to judges. They're assigned to administrative hearing officers, many of whom render important decisions about funds and money and that will provide needed services for a disabled child, for example. And these are individuals who are not uh, trained in the law always, and many of them uh, are, you know, rendering significant decisions that affect interests, fundamental property interests and other interests of these children. And then there's a third category that I really enjoyed writing about, which is the children are living apart from their parents. Mm -hmm. And so everyday decisions about these children are rendered, obviously, by the substitute for the parent, the, the foster parent or the or the staff person at the congregate home where the child is living. Um, and of course, the case manager, the social worker. And these oftentimes affect very fundamental rights and interests. Uh, and so their their lives are abnormal as in foster care. And so the decisions that a parent would make in consultation with a child or just by fiat are taken away from the parent and they're rendered by these non-judicial officers, namely the people that I've described. So at, at one point in the paper, you, um, you say, uh, alluding to some earlier conversations in the literature about this, that law is all over these kids. What does that mean? And I, and, and I want to come back to, 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 to what you just, where, where you just ended. What are these legal dimensions that, that are governing the, uh, the lives of children in foster care? Yeah. So the, the phrase, the law is all over comes from a, uh, and I, a canonical article on poverty, clients from poverty, uh, written by a social, uh, sociologist and lawyer and law professor named uh, Austin Surratt. He teaches at your alma mater, Amherst. And his writing uh, in this old article, but it's been cited many times mm -hmm. uh, by all kinds of legal scholars, has always resonated with me a great deal because it's a study, it's an empirical study of welfare recipients mm -hmm. in uh, two locations unnamed in New England. And he interviews in the waiting rooms uh, the individuals waiting to get served by the, the welfare agency. And several of the uh, people that he interviews, you know, as as the interlocutor in these conversations, uh, come up with these amazingly memorable phrases. Mm -hmm. And the, one of the uh, participants in this study is, says the law is all over, and we were we're per, our lives are permeated right. in that that in that exact phraseology by rules that the welfare system imposes on us. And so I tried to I use this article a lot in our classes mm -hmm. because I, to me it seems like a very easy way to describe the lives of children in care wards of the court, again, uh, where uh, all kinds of rules and regulations that would ordinarily be imposed by mom and dad, or if it's a single parent household, the parent mm -hmm. or the guardian, they are rendered by these non-parental figures. And so the law is all over in all kinds of ways uh, that I describe in the article through the perspectives of the kids, their experiences. You mentioned uh, the Surratt article and the basis of, of his um, assertion through these interviews. How does the voice of children come through? Where does where do we and where do you pick up on that voice? Well, this was this was also sort of a, a 
an enjoyable, although sometimes very compelling and difficult process. What, what we did was we looked at a lot of the testimonial voices of kids. We looked at testimony that children gave in hearings before a state legislature or Congress where they were describing their oftentimes very harrowing experiences in, in care and making recommendations to legislators and, and other stakeholders in public policy about how to reform, how to reform systems so that they, future children coming into state custody would not endure the kinds of indignities that these kids. So that's the primary source of it. And then I also sort of mind one of our clinics cases, children youth law clinics cases, where I gave the, a little case study of a client and some of the things that went back and forth between our clinic students and the client to just sort of get a sense of where clients' voices of sort of fit into, into this analysis. You assert in the, in the paper that the voices of children often go missing in the more traditional legal forums. Um, yet the voices of children in, in these policymaking forums is present. What could these more official um, and dare I say sort of mundane legal venues learn if the voices of children were more, were more regularly included. Yeah, I mean, there could be both on a systems level and for the individual child, decisions would be better informed by the child being invited to participate in a developmentally appropriate way in, let's say, the extrajudicial areas where decisions are made for that child's case, so to speak. Obviously, it's a different, it's a different ball game, as it were, in the in the in the public policy arena, I think public policy experts would universally acknowledge that the child's participation, the child's voice improves the quality of the out, the outcome, the output in terms of public policy. And in the individual child's case, for sure, the inviting the child to the case plan staffing meeting will improve, hopefully improve permanency and other essential legal outcomes and well-being outcomes for the child. Now, the, 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 the average informed but non-expert listener is going to hear you and, and, and they might say, but what about the guardian ad litem program? Isn't, isn't that a mechanism by which the child's interests are brought to bear on these, uh, these processes? What, what are the, um, What's missing in that answer about how this actually works? Yeah, I'll say for public consumption that I'm a big fan of the Guardian Ad Litem program, but the basic premise of the program is to be uh, the voice not for the individual child per se, but for the guardian, but for the the program's view. And I'm speaking about Florida, the program's view of what is in the child's best interest, and they do a very rigorous analysis of what the program believes is is in the best interest of the child. And they are statutorily obligated, at least in our state, to give a statement of the child's wishes. Um, but it's a different, uh, a different form of advocacy when you have a law school trained attorney speaking not just for the wishes of the child, but for the legal interests of the child and bringing the child's voice to the, to, into the room. 
be at the courtroom or the meeting room. And that, I think, greatly enhances. It may very well be, at the end of the day, uh, a decision that the child is not happy with. Mm -hmm. But we have to acknowledge from the literature in the area known as the psychology of procedural justice that win or lose, just having your day in court and having your voice heard uh, will will make you more compliant with the outcome, even if you don't like the outcome of the case. There's lots of research on that. And related to that is, of course, the therapeutic benefits. Uh, this is an article that is designed to also give sort of a therapeutic jurisprudence perspective on juvenile court cases. So before I get to that, I want to come back to what I what I what I hear as a really profound um, statement in in what you've said and in this piece, because you know, we think about the right to counsel as the right to have one's voice translated by a capable professional. You, in some sense, are making uh, at least not the opposite argument, but to suggest that the process ought to be forced to take into account the untranslated voice of certain participants. Well, right back at you. That's a very profound sort of observation about about what I'm what I'm trying to convey. But I also acknowledge that the role of a trained lawyer in translating the wishes, translating the rights uh, the, that are voiced by the child, is essential. The guiding hand of counsel, you know, uh, you, that's quoted in this famous Supreme Court case establishing a right to counsel in delinquency matters in Ray Galt quoting a much earlier decision called uh, Powell versus Alabama, you know, that uh, guiding hand of counsel is a is effectively a lawyer translating a situation of their client uh, in a criminal matter into a viable legal claim. And that's important right. here, too. But there's something I imagine that gets lost even in that translation. And then at, at the very least, I think your point about um, the sort of dignitary interests of being a part of the process um, resonate in it, th th throughout um, uh, th this, and in some sense, um, it's messy. Uh, and I, and in some sense, I, I suspect you're willing to live with that messiness, right? That that yeah. You know. Well, spend a day in, in juvenile <laughs> court. You can do it on Zoom every day, and you'll see a rather uh, chaotic uh, forum for the adjudication of very important interests, parents' interests, the state's interests, and, of course, the child's and the guardian ad litem's interests. So it is messy. I acknowledge that. Uh, again, I, this is, this is, I could go on because this, this is a really um, rich uh, discussion of, of, I think, a, a, a very difficult uh, topic. I want to uh, commend you as, 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 as a colleague, both for this piece, but also for the, for the work that the piece um, articulates, the, the, the engagement in, in, in these systems and, and, and with these processes that is, is so evident uh, in, in the project. Do you have any, any concluding thoughts, any no, I, I enjoy really very much enjoyed. Uh, I guess the only other concluding thought is that this piece ultimately is is about uh, a sort of advances a 
school of scholarship that originated right here at our school of law, the therapeutic jurisprudence. So actually, I, that's, yeah. that's what I wanted to get back yeah. to. I looked at my class. Yeah. Yeah. What is therapeutic jurisprudence? Well, therapeutic jurisprudence uh, was, as I say, it had its origins right here in our, at our law school in the mid-70s. It was the creation of two scholars who were here at the same time, a couple of doors down from each other, Bruce Winnick, who was a long-standing cherished colleague of ours, and, and David Wexler, who was then visiting from the University of Arizona, and they, would both be, they had both been investigating and writing about mental health law, and they were looking at ways that the mental health systems uh, sort of coerce and strip away uh, sort of dignitary rights from people that are involved in all kinds of proceedings that affect liberty. So they came up with this phrase to capture what should be the goals of all of the legal systems that involve all kinds of interests of individuals, which is therapeutic jurisprudence. Not a great phrase, but it's the best one that they could come up with, and it's design and its impetus was to make people feel that they feel better about the the, the law, the legal system, the lawyer, the judge when they when they when the case concludes. But it, it, it I I imagine um, it, it gives us a richer critique of. Um, the even the inadequacies of 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 the things that we celebrate right because the your the piece um highlights in some sense the ways in which the right to process opens one up to further um disrespectful treatment through that process and 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 the law somehow doesn't really have a way of, of, of getting at that. And, 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 and therapeutic jurisprudence seems to pick up exactly where those formal rights articulations seem to, yeah. to, to leave off. And, 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 and your, your paper again, picks up on that in, in, in so many, in so many different ways. Yep. Thank you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you so much. Great. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's show is sponsored by the first annual LATAM Investor State Arbitration Conference, Sunday, October 30th. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.